Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is Mike Rothmiller, and he reached out to me and had this really interesting book that he's put together, compiled. It's a really important historical artifact, I think. And the title of the book is The African Slave Trade in Cannibalism. This is a true story. It's almost not a believable story, but... Um, this is not his first book. He's written many books. We've gone over a lot of his other books. One of them is Bombshell, The Night Bobby Kennedy Killed Marilyn Monroe, which is an international bestseller right now. And I highly recommend people go and get that book and read it. Uh, he also, and this is kind of in line with some of his earlier books where he's compiling or putting together important documentation or documents. And so we talked about Secrets, Lies, and Deception, Top Secret Presidential Telephone Transcripts, Top Secret presidential letters, top secret documents, and other amazing pieces of history. There's two volumes. And then we also just recently talked about the OSS top secret operations. But this book also, uh, the, the title of the, in the interior, the title of this book is The Slave Trade in the Congo Basin by one of Stanley's pioneer officers. It was published in 1890. And for people who don't know the kind of backstory, they might remember the name Stanley and Livingston because of the famous line Stanley when he found Livingston was Stan, Dr. Livingston, I presume. So it's kind of like an interesting uh, artifact of history where Livingston was trying to find the source of the Nile. Source of the Nile was not known really to the European or even Greek world or, or Middle Eastern world. And so he was trying to find it. And even Herodotus wrote something about the source of the Nile. People were trying to find it. So that was one of the things Livingston was doing and he disappeared. And so Stanley was a journalist in the U.S. who was tasked to go find Livingston. And so he had this huge kind of uh, retinue, and they went and they started from where this the maps that are in this book took place. And you'll see references in these maps to Stanley, Stanley's Pool, Stanley's Fork, or things like that. But Stanley really adventured and crossed, I think, 700 miles. So he went from West Africa in the Congo and she found uh, Livingston was living with Arab traders, which are mentioned in this book too. Uh, and he was found, he died about a year and a half after that. Stanley was his pallbearer. Livingston was buried in Westminster Abbey. And then Stanley kind of went on and he had, he got tied up with King Leopold of Belgium, who claimed the Congo. And there was a lot of really ugly things that, uh, Leopold did, but he kind of, he was called the Congo Free State, but uh, he was really kind of, uh, sensibility was to subjugate that in a lot of people. A lot of natives, uh, indigenous people were harmed, but this book takes place within that context and really a fascinating book. The writer of the book is E.J. Glaive, but Mike can talk more about that. Also, I've done an interview with this co-writer of Bombshell. Uh, that was Douglas Thompson. We talked about Thompson's book, Stephen Ward's Scapegoat. So you can check that out in my podcast archive. And also here, there's another list of Mike's other books I will put in the show notes so you can check that out. So Mike Rothmiller, sorry for the long intro. Welcome yeah, back to the show. Yeah, and just okay. to let you know, Douglas and I just finished uh, a book on Frank Sinatra. We finished it last week and that'll be out the end of the year. Awesome. Congratulations. That's great. Yes. I look forward to reading that. Um, do you have a working title? Is that uh, allowed to be spoken? Uh, no, the publisher wants to keep that quiet. Right okay, now. Cool. I understand. Um, but maybe you could just talk about some of your other books. You've def some part of your corpus is getting these documents together. How did you come across this particular 
piece of history? Well, this particular one, I was uh, conducting research for another book, and I came across uh, orders from the King of Belgium to several other people to go into the Congo and find out what's really going on and look at the viability of putting up trading posts and so forth throughout the region. And in it, um, cannibalism and the slave trade kept coming up. That was a major, major issue. And uh, they were reporting back to him. And then during the research, I came across Glade's writing uh, that I put in this book. And I read through it. And I thought, this is a remarkable story. It really tells the beginning of slavery, if you want to say, where's the genesis? What's the root cause of it? And uh, coming out of Central Africa. And so I took it. I re-edited some of it because it was written in the late 1800s. And some things, the way it's phrased, it's not understandable to people today. So I did some editing on it, didn't change the context in any manner, and uh, thought it was very important to put this out there. And so that's why the book is up in paperback and ebook. It's just a fascinating story. It really is. I mean, it's not that long. We were talking the pre-show. It really isn't that long ago, 1890, where all of this was happening. Can you talk about who E.J. Glaive was and what kind of his, uh, what he observed. I think he was in, the, I think he writes in this book, he was in the Congo Basin for like a year or a year and a half, right? Yeah, he was there for uh, at, at least probably 18 months, if not longer. And it was kind of the Stanley group that he was associated with. He went in there to find out more information, what was going on. And uh, also he was looking at, assisting in setting up some trading posts and so forth. So that was still moving forward at the time with the King of Belgium and so forth. And uh, he spent all his time with villagers in different tribes. He was going up the river in a steamboat for a better term. And uh, he had some men with him who were armed and some other ones who were serving as guides from the Congo. And they would stop into these various tribal villages and get to know the chief and some of the people and learn their customs and see what they were doing and how that would be uh, impactful as far as setting up trade stations. And what he was amazed by was the fact slave trade, everybody was involved in slave trade. Uh, There were tribes that were strictly hunters slave hunters they would raid other villages they would take the women and uh, some of the young men away and some of the children generally what they would do if there were still some men in the village that were oh geez at that time probably in their 40s they're still alive they would kill them because they serve no use or they would take them as food and what i mean by that is they were very cannibalistic they would take people and if you were a lucky captive of these people they would sell you to the Arabs or to another tribe, or they would keep you to work for them. If you were unlucky, what they did, they would keep you chained up or in a shed, and they would feed you to fatten you up, and then they would eat you. And they, when you see what he's writing about talking to these village chieftains about cannibalism, killing people, they saw absolutely nothing wrong with it. It was part of their society. They grew up with it, and that's just what you do. Uh, 
there's no thought about killing, keeping somebody alive than to kill them and eat them. So it was just, like I said, it's a remarkable story. Right. And that was kind of like the local economy was this part of the enslavement and transportation and selling and trading of other human beings, right, in that in the, in yeah. the Congo Basin. Absolutely, because the main people that were <clears throat> capturing various uh, tribal members and their tribes were the Arabs, but they only went in so far into the Congo. And beyond that, then it was other tribes that were slave hunters. And they would go on raiding parties. And there were some very peaceful uh, tribes, and they were always the victim. Uh, they knew it. They weren't warriors and so forth. And they were always captive and taken back and sold or eaten. And uh, another, doc, several documents I, I located on this, they talk about the cannibalism in some of these tribes. And what they would do is they would capture man or woman, child, doesn't matter. And if they decided they were going to eat them, what they would do is fatten them up, like I said. But then what they would do is the people in the village would come around and say, well, I want the arm, the left arm. And they would write their name on there or the, whatever they had. And once the whole body was sold, then the person was slaughtered, just like cattle, cut up in pieces and handed to the people who already bought that part of the body. Um, and it's just, when you think about it, it, you know, people just can't believe it. It's said, no, nobody would do that. But yes, they did do that. And, and and they had so there was some kind of tie with the village village chiefs and the slaves too, right? I mean, yeah, they talk yeah. about yeah. yeah, the village chief would uh, he would the more slaves that he had, uh, men or women, the better off uh, he was. He was considered wealthy then. And then a lot of times when he died, uh, if he had say twenty wives, ten of them would be sacrificed and buried with him. And so same thing with the males, however many males he had, they take a number of those and sacrifice them too. And uh, on occasions, even at that, they would celebrate the death of the chief moving on to a new world by consuming one of his slaves. Uh, and they had their own alcohol they would make and they would get drunk. And uh, they had parties. Uh, they mentioned one where they sacrificed some of the slaves and they would sacrifice sometimes 20 in a day by beheading them. A guy had a long, not a sword, but kind of a, a mix between an ax and a sword. And uh, so he, they would dance around, the village was watching. They would chop the head off and they threw up, toss the head and whoever held onto the head for the rest of the day, it was like a trophy. And they were very happy with that. They were honored in the village then. So. Uh, it's, they, had a, they had a different view. They really believed in immortality too. So it was like you're correct. sending off your slaves with the the boss or the chief. Yeah, just like the pharaohs did. Some you know took some of their people, but uh, it's just when you think about it, uh, if you try to visualize it, you, you go, "This is it's crazy. It it can't happen. It never happened." But it happened for who knows how many years, probably well over a few hundred years in Central Africa. And uh, it went on from the documents I read well into about 1920, 1930. Some of the primitive tribes, when they went in, they were still 
involved in cannibalism as they were in uh, New Guinea for many years. So it's just a matter of, uh, it was a meat source for them. And that's how they viewed it. They would trade a person for maybe a goat. Or if you had a goat that said, I want the goat, meat for meat. That was the term they would use. And they were dead serious about it. Right. And I think that there, it was a, like I said, like it's a huge currency. And there, I think he wrote that there was one village or something where there were 500 slaves for sale. So it's, it's a very, there's a lot of people conducting this, right? Yes, exactly. You, you look at the slave markets in the U.S. when that was going on, and they may have 50, maybe 100 at a time that they were selling. But here, they said the one had at least 500. And they, they viewed them as a commodity and as meat, but in many cases, they just starved them to death. They didn't believe in wasting money to feed them because they were slave and they had no value. They have no value in life. So they would kill them. Whereas it, you look at it in the U.S. and other countries had slaves. That was the last thing they wanted to do because a slave brought you money and was worth something. And uh, so it's just a different perspective when you look at it, slavery in various countries. And this is one of the really horrid stories about slavery. Uh, when you're looking at them as a meat source. Right. So, yeah, no, it's incredible. And also it kind of reminded me of the Aztecs where they collected the skulls. So even back in Central Africa at that time, the skulls were like a totem of power, like the more skulls you had. And this that's, guy, that's right. yeah, right. can you talk about that? Yeah, that's right. Uh, they would collect the skulls of the people they killed. And the more skulls you had, the wealthier you were and they use those to trade and uh, a lot of times they were willing to trade ivory uh, that they took from say elephants or whatever animals had it and trade that for a slave and it was like this is worthless to us this ivory but here we want this slave and then they would also want to trade heads uh, with well when Glade went in too uh, they were looking at bringing him some skulls to trade with and or do you want to meet some meat? And one time they tried selling him a piece of human flesh. Uh, it's delicious. <laughs> you know, that's what he said. And what's really, really interesting, and it shocks some of the people I've mentioned, I've got document, were saying that in New Guinea and in Central Africa, they did not want to eat white people or whites or light-skinned people. And so... I asked him, I said, do you have an idea why they would not want to do that? And they said, well, it must have been a religious thing or something. I said, no, no, no. They said that whites, the meat of a white person is too salty and they didn't like it. So they preferred eating uh, other tribal members and people they'd capture. Interesting. And actually, I think that was the famous story of when Nelson Rockefeller's son was that he went missing in New Guinea and was supposedly eaten by some tribe. Have you ever heard that? I've heard that story. Yeah, he, he was there and he uh, heard a number of things. One, that he may have drowned before he, he was swimming ashore. And the other one said he did reach it. And uh, he was a victim of cannibalism. Right. So, yeah, but also it was they did ritualize kind of these uh, sacrifices and killings too, right? So there was a kind of like yes. a guy dressed up and they would really taunt and torture this person before... You know, the kill, it's like the, it was like the whole 
tribe was involved in this uh, sacrifice and killing, right? Yeah, it was a big party uh, in a sense. And uh, well, in the book, there's some drawings that he made of the executioner's dress that he would wear and the sword that he would use to take the head off. And um, they would start early, the men and the women, everybody in the village, and they were just starting drinking their alcohol made out of uh, palm trees. And it was a huge celebration and a party. Then they started attacking and humiliating the person that's going to be sacrificed because they were tied to a stake, basically. And uh, what they're also talking about how they would bring down a branch of a sapling, uh, kind of like a bow, bending it over, and they would tie the rope around the person's neck so that when they sever the head, the head would shoot into the air at times. And everybody would chase the head like a ball and once again, keep the head and celebrate uh, that execution. And then they would go to another one and another one, and it would last from all day well into the evening. And I said, sometimes it sacrifices as many as 20 people like that. The odd thing about Glaive too, is he said he never felt threatened. Like their um, sensibilities were not, they had a kind of uh, uh, ideology that didn't, include like trying to sacrifice or eat him or trade him right yeah and i you really can't say why that was you know maybe this first time they saw a guy coming up almost like in a steam a little steamship and they were enthralled by that but also he had some early firearms and uh that was probably the main reason they realized what a gun was they didn't know how to use it maybe they thought it was magical in some respect and uh but once they saw that and some of his other people had were armed um they probably thought it was better to back off and they may saw they may have looked at him as a guy who would buy slaves from them too enhance their economy so it's just you can't get into the mind of these villagers uh who are in the slave trading cannibalism what they were actually thinking right uh, he said, I mean, I think he writes in the story, too, that trade was starting to happen. So the native, the locals, indigenous people were getting richer from this trade because it was becoming transnational, right? So they were trading right. with the Arabs and other people. Yeah, they were trading for a lot of people on the various rivers all the way to the coast. And uh, they were bringing in things like metal knives and pottery and, and pots and pans and things like that. Uh, clothing that they thought was wonderful. You know, they looked at it from plaid shirt or something, a cloth. And so, yeah, the trade was beginning and uh, they probably you know, looked up to him. And I think there was also some fear. They thought, well, this guy could be good for us, but also we don't know what he can do to us if he became angry. And uh, so I think there was some fear that kept them from killing him and his party. And I thought it was interesting too. So they also used the slaves to like sign the ink on a document. So if they had an agreement, they would kill somebody and that would, that would be like to, to kind of uh, solemnize the, the agreement. Right. Do you remember that yeah. part of the book? Yeah. yeah. It was sealed in blood. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people have heard that book sealed in blood and, uh, it probably came from a lot of locations, you know, in ancient history, but that's how they viewed things too. They sealed it in blood and 
generally with somebody else's blood. So it's, uh, <laughs> it, it's a story that will keep people up at night when they read it. Right. And also like they would sell like an execution would be a celebration, like a gala. So like, yes, we're going to have an execution tonight. So the sensibility wasn't, it was festive, like it was weird in the way that they were festive about it. Right. Yeah. And I uh, read some other documents where when they were going to have a sacrifice, sometimes villages that were maybe 10, 20, 30 miles away, they would, that weren't in competition with them, put it that way they would send out a notice, we're going to have a party and an execution of who knows how many people. And they would come in uh, to these regional parties and these various tribes would celebrate with their alcohol and so forth. And sometimes the other tribes, so we'll bring a couple people to sacrifice too. And so they'd all get together and uh, have a mass sacrifice and then they would eat most of the people or a lot of them. It's just it's just insanity when when you read it. It's very strange, but I always think of these other tribes, New Guinea, the Aztecs, where the blood death stuff uh, had a kind of a sacramental quality, very dark, evil one. But yes, like the the Aztec priests would do that too, like their sacrifice. I don't know if they did. There was cannibalism in Aztec culture too. I don't know if it was as overt as this, but they definitely. Ate human flesh at the Aztecs. I don't know if it was as common, but yeah. Well, um, well, I read that they ate the hearts out of some of the victims when the priest or the king would sacrifice. They take the heart out if it's still beating. It was a good omen, and uh, they would eat the heart. Um, I would assume yeah, they but, eat other body parts too. But Glaive was. I mean, he's interested in stopping this behavior too, right? So he's he's. Right memorializing it but he wants it to end too right yes he, he talks about uh the steps to, to try to stop it um and one of the main things is that as in most most cultures even today they respect power and uh, that was a way to do it you if you had to you made an example of a group and the word gets around rather rapidly and if you have vastly superior firepower and weaponry that they would have over these villages, uh, they're going to pay attention. And uh, that was pretty much the way they were looking at it to try to end slavery. And <clears throat> it, it went on for many years afterwards because you have remote villages. Uh, the word doesn't get out. They keep doing what they've been doing for generations. Um, so as I've heard uh, recently that in some parts of Africa, slave trade is still going on. Some parts of the world, uh, there's still cannibalism going on at times. So it, it's something that, will it ever be wiped out completely? Who knows? Uh, but it's unlikely in the very, very primitive areas, especially where meat is difficult to come by. I know that there are supposedly slave auctions now in Libya, so of African, you know, sub-Saharan Africans. There, I mean, I don't know if it's an overt trade, but I think that that uh, is happening now. Yeah, and in fact, um, you may recall about, oh, it was probably 10, 15 years ago, when there was a major earthquake in Haiti and the Clintons went down and so forth. Well, I've got State Department documents uh, 
regarding Hillary going down there and they said, well, how are you going to address the issue of slave trading in Haiti? And that's not that long ago. And what it gets into details is what they were doing. Um, they were selling children. Uh, and once they got uh, of age of say 17, 18, they didn't consider them useful anymore because they're kind of getting rebellious and they would just toss them out. But prior to that, they would, some of these people were purchasing them when they were five, six, seven years old, and they brought them up as a housekeeper and cook and whatever, basically it was a slave situation. And then when they came of age, for a better term, they would throw them out on the street. And they wanted to know what Hillary, how she was going to address this. And these are all in documents, State Department, that haven't been released, but I was able to acquire some. And uh, it's fascinating. They were concerned with the slave trade in Haiti. Right. And I think that one of an associate of Hillary, the Sibley woman, was caught taking kids. The parents wanted the kids, but she still was transporting 30 kids around into the United States. Something like that happened. So, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And then very, she changed her name funny. and disappeared. Yeah. Something very strange. Yeah. Laura Silsby says Fire Pixie. There it is. <clears throat> um, do you think, uh, Fire Pixie asked, do you think the slave trade could have happened without the partic participation? of these other African tribes? Well, it would, have, it, it would have been uh, up to the Arabs then, not the other tribe hunters, the, the slave hunters. Uh, that probably would have been limited because going in from the coast, they can only go in so far and there are only so many tribes and there are only so many people you can take because it's not like, obviously it takes a long time for a person to grow to be a valuable slave and uh, so it's a commodity that takes a lot of time and effort and you have to keep the person healthy too the whole situation but um, with that being said without the other tribes involved the, the slave hunters uh, it wouldn't have flourished as it did because I think probably the numbers could have been oh probably uh, 60, 70% less because the Arabs can only do so much. Uh, but the other tribes, they knew where the, the people live. They knew how to stalk them, how to catch them, how to defeat them in a war in the villages because they were brought up in those regions. And uh, so I think without that, uh, the international slave trade would have been reduced considerably. Right. And I think it was kind of the same thing in West Africa. Like there, there were certain tribes that were facilitating this whole triangle, right, of the slaves being yes. shipped to the New World. So I think this was somewhat similar where there were certain groups definitely who were the, you know, the, involved in that culture. So it's kind of like it was a, the global slave trade. Don't quote me on this, but I think the global slave trade was facilitated by the what was happening on the ground in Africa at that time because they yeah, were the, they just the tribes that country. were the slave hunters that were inland in the Congo, they would take their people to the coast and sell them to the Arabs in, in most cases. And so um, without that, they would have very few people to sell as slaves down the line, but they kept the supply going. Uh, there are many, many I want to say passive tribes and other tribes that they would defeat and they would just take as many people as they could get them to the coast uh and sell them there to the right. primarily and, to the Arab slave traders 
Right, and that's an interesting point, Mike, because we always think about the West Coast coming to the New World, but there was a whole other slave trade out of Zanzibar into yes. the Muslim world and things like that. Yes. Like there were stories of Muslim slaves and eunuchs and all kinds of stuff like that in that culture. Um, yeah, China had plenty of them too back then, you know. And uh, so you look at it, it's not the slave trade wasn't anything uh, just related to the U.S. and some other countries. It basically encompassed the entire world. Uh, we're involved in slave trading. And uh, you look at it and you say, well, uh, all of them are coming out of Central Africa, most of them, the vast majority. Who was responsible for that? Was these tribes that were uh, slave hunters and capturing people and selling them to the uh, other slave traders? Why do you think that the, 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 there were so many African slaves? Like, there were other slaves, though. There's a huge like what you call white slave trade going into the Muslim world. Uh, and you could say a lot of these things that were happening in the U.S., there weren't just African slaves. A lot of these indentured servants were trafficked. So I don't think you you can look at it as just African slaves, but there was all kinds of... And you can look at the, uh, the native indigenous American tribes had slavery too. Some of these communities. Oh, yes, yes. that's... Uh... I wrote about that one book, the Cherokee tribe, uh, and I've got the documents on it. It's, it's pretty interesting that when they wanted to, when they're being moved out of their homelands and sent to Oklahoma, it was the Trail of Tears and so forth. And uh, in the document, in the order that uh, the general signed, he said, "Now, when the Cherokee, when they're coming down, the other tribes said you have to treat them with respect, keep them fed, and so forth." You have to respect their goods and their animals and their horses. And also you have to respect their slaves they're bringing. And so they became, uh, before the Civil War, very wealthy as a tribe because they had the documents say between five and 10,000 African slaves and also some other Indian slaves that they captured from other tribes. Um, and they were doing well in agriculture and then when the Civil War came along, they fought, General Stanwaddy was their chief, they fought for the Confederacy because they wanted to keep all their slaves. And uh, it's called the, uh, the Cherokee Long Rifles, I think, but the Stanwaddy was the chief. Then he finally said, okay, the war's getting to an end, but the Cherokees, they didn't give up their slaves at the end of the war. And they said, no, we're a separate nation whatever Lincoln said and any other president doesn't match. So what they decided to do uh, and all the internal documents in fact, they said, well, what we're, we're supposed to supply the Cherokee with food and water, you know, some water in different areas where they needed it and all the supplies to maintain their livelihood. And they said, until they release their slaves, we're not going to give them anything. And so that forced their hand to free their slaves. And it was well after the Civil War. Um, right so, after the Emancipation, emancipation yeah, exactly. Proclamation. Yeah, so you look at it and it's just, uh, there's a lot of slavery went on in different areas and uh, it was handled in a completely different fashion because people that, because they were in the US, slavery ended there. Well, it didn't end for the slaves of the Cherokee and some of the other tribes. They said, huh, we're a separate nation. Right. So, I heard the same thing at the Comanche. I heard the Comanche had like 
10 or 15,000 African slaves all distributed through their territory in uh, West Texas. So I got to go back and double check that. But yeah. slavery, unfortunately, was endemic in societies. I mean, the, the Romans were notorious for conquering countries, salting it over and selling everybody into slavery. So that was 2000 years ago. So yeah, you're before commodity, they looked at it as uh, basically cattle, you know, we're selling cattle so much per head for a healthy steer as opposed to a healthy person. And it's just, uh, it's, it's good that in, let's say, put it this way, in the civilized world, it's not going on any longer, but in still some parts of the world it is. Um, and you could, you, end, who knows? You could typify some of the sex trafficking and things like that, that they are enslaved in a way. And it may not just be a perfect stamp like you are a slave, but some of these people being trafficked are definitely in, a, in an enslaved environment. So, oh, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely. we can kind of say this is something the past or we're better than that. But some of these people being trafficked here in California, they, they don't have a choice. They're kept somewhere and they're kept from their family and moved around and. There's some horrible things happening there now, so happening yeah. in the United States. Because I remember when I was, well, this is going back many years when I was a cop working intelligence in L.A., uh, we were well aware of their, if you want to say groups, for a better term, they were very loosely knit, but they were associated with each other, and they were doing that. And a lot of them were uh, Chinese nationals that came in, some from South America and so forth, some from Africa. But the family would they would take them and they say, "You are now ours." And some of these people they work basically as a slave uh, for them without pay. They've just given a room to stay in and some food, and it went on for uh, years and years. And there there are a lot, quite a few. There are a lot of them doing that. And what's interesting is that um, nobody seemed interested in doing anything about it then. You know, the DAs and some of the PDs, the sheriff's department say, well, you know, this is getting an iffy area for us. And the problem was they were worried about PR, too. They said, well, if we go and arrest this person now for keeping their own slave, uh, the question comes up, well, they had that person for 15 or 20 years. And you're just learning about this. How can that be? Why didn't you take action before? And. It was just a real touchy area uh, where most law enforcement uh, chiefs and sheriffs wanted to look the other way. You know, it's too touchy. I don't want to handle it. So it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist, right? Because they yeah. don't acknowledge. I've heard some of those sweatshops, too, in Chinatown when I was in San Francisco are pretty much like chattel slavery or something. Like, they're not much different than slaves. You can't leave. You work 14 hours a day. You don't get paid. I manage your money. So, I mean, some of these... Some of these things happen. I mean, this African slave trade was something else because they ate people too. But uh, slavery, unfortunately, it seems to be endemic in societies. Is there anything you'd like to add, Mike, or anything that I missed before we wrap it up? Where can people get the African slave trade? In well, well that, it's available on Amazon, uh, in Kindle, and paperback, and probably be at Barnes & Noble in the very near future. But uh, right. that's where to get it. And just be aware, it's going to be a shocking story they're going to read. Yeah, it really is shocking. And it's really a great piece of history. Like it's, I've, you did a great job by just getting this so people can see this firsthand account by 
this guy EJ Glaive. I think uh, also ties into Stanley and Livingston and kind of adventuresome type stuff. So again, uh, title of the book is The African Slave Trade and Cannibalism, just published by Mike Rothmiller. Thanks so much for your time, Mike. You're welcome. Thank you. Take care. Stay there, stay there.